The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Would you pray with me? Father God, we gather together this morning to do an impossible thing. To come to your word, your revelation of yourself, and to see you as you really are, to rightly understand and, and discern what you have revealed to us here, and then to live in light of that. It is an impossible thing in our flesh. It is an impossible thing for the natural mind. Therefore, Father, we come completely dependent upon you, not just to speak, but to allow us to hear. So, Father, we ask you to do that for your own glory's sake and certainly for our good. Would you allow us to hear this not just as words upon a page, but as the voice of our Heavenly Father and to rejoice in it? Father, we love you. We trust you and we thank you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Go ahead and return to your feet, please. We jump right into this morning's text. We continue reading the first chapter of the book of Ephesians, beginning in verse 3. This is the Word of God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Father God, would you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to believe what we have just heard. Your son's precious name we pray. Amen. So for something like 18 months, we gathered together here in this room on every single Wednesday night to examine the scriptures and contemplate together the nature and the character of God. Now you all know that in a very real way, literally everything that we do as a church family is seeking to know and to see and to understand God. But for that year and a half, what we devoted our midweek gathering to might be called theology proper. That is the study of the person and the attributes of God. Now, it's impossible for me to overstate how very precious that time was to me. It is my favorite thing. Frankly, I think it's the most important thing. 
just to come to the scriptures and open them up, the whole of them, from, gener- uh, from Genesis to Revelation, and ask, what has this book told me about who God is? Before I seek to worry about how this thing uh, is to play out in my life, before I worry about my emotions, before I try to find myself anywhere in the text, the most important thing is to ask, what does this word tell me about God? And frankly, as I told you, that is the whole of what we do as a people. Just trying to get our eyes on him, just one more glance, just a slightly better view. More than anything else, we want to see and know more of God. Now, those of you that gathered with us on those Wednesday evenings, you'll remember that there were two words of exhortation that I gave you almost every single week. The first of them was I urge you to see and to remember that man will never, ever, Not in a billion years, not even in heaven, will we ever fully know everything that there is to know about God. Now, this isn't a thing I just say on Wednesday nights. I say it here from this pulpit on Sunday mornings as well, but it's important. Missing this can have terrible implications for our life and our understanding about God and our expectations in this world. You must know that no matter how long you devote yourselves to studying the word of God, No matter how long you have walked with God and counted him as your father, there will always be more of him to know. There never comes a moment in a Christian's life where he can put God upon a shelf. There's never a moment when our minds work in seeking to see God more clearly, to be reformed in our thoughts about him, putting to to bed those those faulty thoughts, those faulty understandings that we have developed of him. There will never become a point when we can rest from that work. So the goal, therefore, cannot be to come to the end of learning about God because there is no end. As you have probably come accustomed to hearing me say, God is not a puzzle to be solved. He is a mystery to behold. But there was a second warning that I gave you. Over and over again, I reminded you that absolutely everything that we know about God, we know only because he has chosen to disclose it to us. Are you with me? Man could literally spend all eternity seeking and studying and searching. And unless God has chosen to reveal himself, we would know absolutely nothing about him. Now, I promised myself I wasn't going to get too deep in the weeds on this topic. But it is critical. It's critical for this morning's text. And it's critical for your approach to how you're going to think about God. Scripture seems to indicate to us that God is transcendent. Listen to the words of the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 40, verse 22. It is he, that is God, who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. You will often hear me say this something like, God is above and outside and beyond the created universe. You recognize that this is much more than just a statement of location. What I'm indicating to you here is not that if you could build a powerful enough rocket ship, if you could travel fast and far enough, if perhaps somebody could just give you the coordinates to some alternate plane, then maybe you could reach God. Transcendent speaks to the very being, the essence of God, that God is the only self-existent, the only infinite, the only eternal being in all the universe, that he is not made of matter or light or energy or any such thing, that God is not a composition of parts, that God is not ever becoming, that God in and of himself is pure being, He is. He is the great I am. And because of this, he derives his existence from nothing or no one outside of himself. Therefore, to say that God is transcendent is simply to acknowledge that he is separate from 
and in no way dependent upon anything in this creation. So practically, for the sake of this morning's text, for the sake of the way that you approach God, the way that you think about your knowledge of him, you must recognize that this means that there was nowhere man could have gone. There was no thought that man could have attained. There was no idea that man could generate that would ever lead us to the true and living God. Unless God does something to reveal himself, we would know absolutely nothing about him or his plans or his purposes. Now, if you actually consider what I've just said to you, if you're paying attention and don't just consider this some theological ramblings that have nothing to do with the actual text this morning, if you actually consider what I've just said to you, there's a chance that your heart's going to cry out, that your mind's going to interject and say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Haven't you also told us that in Romans 1, God says that there is something about his nature that is revealed, even in creation, to the whole of mankind? Haven't you told us that in Romans 2, it says that the very moral law of God has been inscribed on the hearts of men? Haven't you told us in Genesis 1 that man is made, that even in our person, we bear the image of God? Don't you stand in this place every time we dedicate a baby and refer to Psalm 139? And isn't it in that same psalm where David says that there is nowhere in all the world, not in the most darkest of places, not even in the depths of Sheol, that man can go to escape from the presence of God? So which one is it? If those things are true, then how can you stand before us and tell us that apart from something of God, some working of God, that man can never know anything about him? Well, I'd ask you to consider what those texts actually say. Going to Romans 1.19, it says that what can be known about God is plain to mankind because. You see, there's a reason why we can know something plainly about God. There's a reason why even the unregenerate man can behold something about the nature of God. And that is because God has shown it to them. I would take you back to creation and remind you that it was God himself, not something outside of him. Not something that was required in creation itself, but that it was God who, himself who said, let us make man in our own image. That this is the initiative. This is the plan and purposes and activity of God. That the reason why man can look to the vastness of outer space and know something about the power and creativity of God. The reason why man can look upon an ultrasound and see God's intricate hand in the forming together of a child in his mother's womb. There's a reason why we can know something about God's moral code written upon our heart is expressly because God has chosen to make it so. In short, the God whom we would have never, ever, ever, ever known anything about has chosen to make himself known. Therefore, it is right to say that God is not only transcendent, but that he is imminent. That not only is God by his nature unknowable to man, unless he chooses to reveal himself, by will he has chosen to come near, to allow himself to be seen, to reveal himself to us, to create and move and act and plan and purpose within his creation so that his creatures might behold something about him. But... Scripture also makes abundantly clear. You'll recall from our time in Romans 1, I seem to beat this drum over and over and over again, but God keeps bringing me back to it. Because you'll recall that also in Romans 1, Scripture makes clear that while man can look through a telescope and he can know something about the power and the nature of God, this only serves to leave that man without excuse. This only serves to strip away from the man the right to say, God, if you had just made yourself known, I would have worshipped you. 
And yet this is a long way short of revealing to man what God's ultimate plans and purposes are. A man seeking to know, man seeking to understand, a man, man seeking to have wisdom into the purposes and the will of God, he will not understand this purely from looking at the stars, just from looking within himself, just from beholding the image of God in him and looking at a mirror. Therefore, if man's going to know something about the plans and purposes of God, that he might turn from himself. If you're going to know something about the promises of God, that you would turn in repentant faith. If you're going to comprehend anything of God's plans and purposes, that you might honor him and walk in holiness. If you're going to have any understanding of what God's ultimate goal for this whole world is, you're going to understand what's going on, what is God doing even now, then God must speak. He must reveal he must disclose to us something more than can be beheld in creation by natural man. And I think that this leads us into this morning's text. You recall that we've been studying really from verse 7 down through verse 10. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. So you'll recall that we spent the majority of our time last week celebrating, rejoicing in this all wisdom and insight which God has seen fit to give to his saints. If I could give you just a summary of that section we've just read, we determined that what God is saying here is that Paul is, Paul is calling us to bless the name of God because he has redeemed us from slavery to sin, and he has reconciled us to himself through the sacrificial and substitutionary death of his son. The giving of God's beloved son, according to Paul, is an extraordinary act of goodness towards undeserved sinners. And this, the immeasurable riches of this grace, that's what he calls this, this is a grace, a gift given to men who do not deserve it, who could not possibly earn it that the riches of God's grace have been lavished upon us, been showered upon us, not given begrudgingly, not sparingly, not holding back something, but he has lavished the riches of his grace upon us, not only in the forgiveness of sin, but also in giving us all the wisdom, all the insight necessary to rightly understand his will so that we can come to the knowledge of his purposes. So I pray that my weaknesses as a pastor, that my weakness as a preacher did not in any way get in the, become a hindrance to you last week that prevented you from walking out of this place truly rejoicing in this magnificent truth. Understanding that in Christ Jesus, as the saints of God, as those who have been chosen, not just in spite of your flaws, but have been chosen that he would overcome your flaws, that he has given you true spiritual wisdom and insight that you may come to the knowledge of his plans. We talk not about the wisdom and the insight of the world, not the lifeless knowledge of this world, not the wisdom of man, but the enduring wisdom of God, that which accords with his plans and his purposes, that which allows us to see God as he really is, to rightly discern that which he has revealed insight into the unfolding of his good pleasure as we work through his word i pray that you never take that for granted i pray that i never become a hindrance to you celebrating and rejoicing in the gift that is the knowledge of god i pray that you never make little of this i pray that you give your life to cherishing and beholding and striving after true godly biblical knowledge so this morning 
as we continue our exposition, working through verse 9, I want to draw your attention to that word, mystery. Verse 9, he says, making known to us the mystery of his will. Now, this word in Greek, mysterion, the apostle Paul, he uses it pretty often. I believe it's 27 times the word is used in the whole of the New Testament, and 20 of those times they came from the pen of Paul. Matter of fact, we find it six times here in the book of Ephesians alone. So surely we ought to consider what does he mean by this word, mystery? What is a mysterion? What is the nature of this knowledge? That's the real question. What is the nature of this knowledge which God has granted to us is a lavish gift of grace? Now, whenever we hear the word mystery, many of us, perhaps immediately our mind would go to something that's essentially incomprehensible. That, this is, that a mystery is something that's to be experienced but never really understood, something vague and impossible to describe. Now we can see this, while men may not put it in these words, we can see such an understanding playing out in places wherever Christianity becomes about more like a private and personal mystical encounter of some sort, where the church moves away from propositional statements, where no longer do we say things, do we declare things with any concrete certainty about who God is, about what his plans and his purposes are. Instead, we paint a picture of something much more nebulous and abstract. Instead, again, we talk about emotions and experiences, and we leave men, while we may not say it in such clear terms, we leave men to believe that it is going to be up to them to determine what their religion will look like. It's up to them to determine what God actually means in this word. And that we would object then. We would object to pastors standing in pulpits. We would object to churches gathering together and demanding of men that they speak with any kind of doctrinal precision about God. We would object to men to uh, requiring that we would hold any kind of positional statement about who God is. Any kind of statement of absolute truth as revealed in his word. We would call these things to be too narrow, too unspiritual. And we see this all around us. That Christianity becomes all about experiences something ethereal, something almost impossible to define. But clearly, this type of understanding, it it betrays a a completely different thought with regards to this word mystery than the Apostle Paul intends. You know that Paul never leaves it up to man to define for themselves who God is. He's just devoted his life. Even as he strains the bounds of human language, We've often talked about this, like a little boy reaching for the stars. It's, it's that Paul is just, he's constantly searching and reaching and just trying to grab that right word, just piling phrase upon phrase upon phrase, trying to drive home to us who God is, trying to bring us to a clearer understanding, not of our own thoughts, not of our own imaginations, but who does this word say God is? Who has he revealed himself to be? Paul desperately wants us to speak and to think and to live in light of an accurate understanding of who God is. And so Paul, he does this. He delivers these words to us, these tremendous phrases, these great doctrinal statements. He delivers them to us with a clear expectation that for the believer, for those who have been born again, for those who have been given eyes to see and ears to hear, to the saints who have been set apart in Christ Jesus, that we would have an understanding, a grasp of what he's saying, even when the thing he's speaking about is called a mystery. I want you to think about what Paul says in Romans 11, 25. He's talking about a great mystery. It's talking about Israel's hardening. But then he says to these ordinary saints who read this word, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. That he intends, that he fully expects that the saint, that the ordinary Christian, they will come to this thing which is rightly called a mystery and that we would understand it, that we would grasp it, that we would think rightly about it. So clearly he doesn't use this word mystery to refer to something that's undefined or unknowable, but rather something that is definite. 
something that is defined and something that is important for us to know. But again, I say we must be careful. We must be careful not to take this to mean that this is something that can be discovered through the unaided mind of natural man. In 1 Corinthians 2.7, Paul calls this a secret and hidden wisdom. And I think perhaps that hidden secret is maybe a better term than mystery. Because whenever I present to you a mystery, your mind might immediately go again to the idea of a puzzle. Something that's to be left up to the really smart people. And if you give them enough time, if you can get enough of them in a room, if they can spend enough effort and search long and hard enough, they're going to solve it. They're going to figure it out. But a secret, something that is hidden, it cannot be found, no matter how much time you have, unless it has been revealed. And once it has been revealed, it is made plain to everyone who has eyes to see it. Are you tracking with me? That what he's saying here, and I think this is much closer, is that this is a thing which has been hidden. Again, I say not a puzzle to be solved. Martin Lloyd-Jones says it like this. It is a mystery in the sense that man, with his unaided, fallen mind and intellect, can never discover or arrive at it. But when it is revealed to him by God, even the simplest man is able to understand it. Are you tracking with me? This isn't a puzzle for smart people to put together. It's a mystery to be revealed. It's a secret to be told. And when the secret is told, when the mystery is revealed, it's not a matter of the power of your intellect. It's do you have eyes to see it? Do you have ears to hear it? Do you have a heart that will believe it? Now, I need to make one more statement of clarification with regards to this word, mysterion. During the time of Paul's writing, there was a number of what you might call mystery religions or mystery cults. That there were these there were these cults, these groups that would gather together and they would have these special rites and rituals and only if you had been allowed access into the group, only if you had gone through all the ceremonies, only if you had observed all the rites, could you then have any real knowledge of the religious practices of that people. And so for many in Paul's day, and I'm not saying that these have completely gone away, there's still men today that hold to these faulty understandings of God, how man can approach God. They think that it's only for the initiated. It's only for the smart and special people. It's only for those who are on the inside of this club that we would reveal such a message. And so therefore, if you're going to know anything about the blessedness of the divine, if you're going to know anything about spiritual matters, it only comes through going through their mystical rites, these magical and, and difficult to define and, and these secret rituals. And perhaps some of that thinking can, can seep into our own understanding of what this word mystery means. You say, okay, Josh, you tell me that this isn't a puzzle to be solved, that this isn't a riddle to be figured out by smart people, that this is a secret to be revealed. This is something hidden that needs to be exposed. Perhaps then what makes it so precious, perhaps then what makes it a mystery then is not that it's ununderstandable or undiscernible or unknowable. Perhaps it's that we don't reveal it to anyone other than these special, few, select, important people. Maybe what makes it a mystery is it's not to be proclaimed to everyone, but it's to remain hidden. A closely guarded secret only be discussed in certain hidden circles. But again, this clearly is at odds with the way that Paul uses this word mystery. I want you to consider his word at the end of the book of Ephesians. He's telling these people, he's imploring these saints to pray for him. Ephesians 6.19, that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly, to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Paul is in prison precisely because he has boldly and openly proclaimed this mystery to the world. Not just in synagogues, but in courtyards, in public squares, and in marketplaces. The apostle Paul boldly proclaimed this mystery. He indicates the same thing in Colossians 4.3. 
Pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I might make clear which is how I ought to speak. He is saying that his express purpose, the reason why this mystery has been entrusted to him is that he would make it clear, that he would boldly proclaim it even under the threat of death, even if this means that he's going to go to prison, even if the ones who he proclaims it to don't have eyes to see and see it as nothing but foolishness and a stumbling block. But that this mystery is not something that's to be kept from the world. It's something to be boldly proclaimed to everyone, openly proclaiming this mystery. First, uh, First Corinthians 4.1, this is how one should regard us, Paul says, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. I think steward is a wonderful word here. That he's a caretaker, he's a steward, he's a manager perhaps. That God has not entrusted this message to him to be kept under a bushel. He has not entrusted this thing to him to be hid, hidden from others. He has entrusted this thing to him that he would faithfully bring it out before the eyes of all men. You tracking with me? Look at Ephesians 3.1. You might turn there in your Bibles. Ephesians 3.1. I think we get an even clearer picture of what Paul means by this word mystery here. Now he's going to give us a more definite, and a more, a more sharp definition of mystery here in this text, and we're not going to touch on that today. We're going to come back next week, and we're going to ask, what is this mystery which is revealed? What is the essence of this truth which is revealed? Today we're just considering what is the nature of a mystery? What does Paul mean when he says that we have knowledge of a mystery? But look at it here, Ephesians 3.1. For this reason... I, Paul, a prisoner in Christ. A recurring theme, isn't it? Those who have been given stewardship of the mysteries of God, those to whom God has entrusted this hidden secret, they often find themselves at odds with the world precisely because they chose not to keep it hidden, precisely because they chose to boldly proclaim it to men who would reject it. So here he is again. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace. There's that same word again, steward or manager or administrator. Assuming you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. This is key. Paul recognizes that under the revelation of God, this mystery has been given to him. This understanding of this mystery has been given to Paul for the express purpose that he would then pass it on to us. It was given to him for us, for our sake, as an act of incomparable grace of incredible mercy, an incredible undeserved gift from God, this mystery has been given to Paul for us. How this mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. So how do we know? How do we know that this mystery has been given to Paul? How do we know that this mystery that was once hidden is now being revealed? How can we trust that his words are true? How can we have any access when Paul has now been dead for some 2,000 years? Because he has then written this word for us. It's recorded here for us, the mystery. This doesn't seem like much of a mystery. We have access to it on our phones and on our iPads. Countless number of Bibles all throughout our homes. And when we come to this word, it doesn't always feel like we're engaging in something that might be called mysterious, supernatural, extraordinary. It feels boring. At times it can feel laborious. It feels like a chore at times. What Paul is saying is every time you approach this word, you're encroaching upon a mystery. A great hidden truth that has been revealed to me for you. Are you with me? Oh, he's saying that in this word, the saints, they perceive the insight which God has given the apostles into this glorious mystery. When you read this, 
you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. He's saying this mystery is something that was not made known to men in other generations, at least not the way that it has been made known now through the apostles. He's going to say down in verse 9 that this was a mystery that was hidden for all the ages. This is a mystery that was once concealed but has now been revealed. It was once hidden even to the Old Testament saints, even to the Old Testament prophets. This thing had once been hidden, but how? I want you to think about these men who received word from God. We talk on Sunday nights right now. We're working through the minor prophets, and we've talked about the nature of a prophet. He's God's spokesman. That God comes to this man, and we don't know exactly the way that this process worked. Maybe it was different in the life of each of these prophets, but that God would speak through these men, revealing things that had previously been unrevealed, revealing these things to his people and to the world through his chosen spokesman. And yet what we're reading here is there were things that were previously hidden even to them. This thing, this mystery that is now received received by Paul and revealed through him to us through his writing that they didn't even see this thing but how in Peter's first letter 1 Peter 1:10 he talks about the fact that the prophets of old they searched and they inquired carefully they considered the words of promise that God had spoken to them i'm just imagining this right the writing prophets that God would speak to them that they would record them a message for the people they would sit back and they would look at it and they go but how can this be how will this possibly play out God, you have promised from Genesis 3 that you would send one, an offspring from woman, to crush the head of the serpent. You have promised the father Abraham that you would bless all the nations of the earth. You have promised through Moses that we would be a holy and saintly and set-apart people. You have promised to David that there would be a king upon the throne for all eternity. You have promised that our sins would be removed from us once and for all. You have promised that the kingdoms of the earth would become The kingdoms of the earth would become the kingdom of heaven. And I look around and I see none of this. God, how can it be? And so they would search and they would look and they would study and they would struggle. I think about the prophet Jeremiah in exile. He searches the scriptures and he gets a peace. He recognizes that God has promised this would last for 70 years. So we see as these men as they search and they stretch and they study and they seek to know more of this mystery which is yet unseen. How will God do what he has purposed? How will God accomplish what he has promised? Because they spoke in a time that was consumed by shadows and copies and pictures and signs, and they were always pointing forward to this day. That in the words of Jesus that David read earlier, they longed to see what you see but did not see it. They longed to hear what you hear but did not hear it. These men, they longed to see more fully the kingdom of God. They desperately wanted to know more about how this thing which God had planned before the foundation of the world. Think about just the blessing we have in this. As we approach this word, as the Apostle Paul pulls back the veil to heaven and says, let me show you what God's eternal plans were before there was a world. They longed to see these things. They longed to know how God would accomplish this thing. And yet, they were always looking forward. They were always straining and searching for more. This is why Jesus would say of John the... uh, John the Baptist, this one who he says, of those born of women, there has been no one greater. No one greater. And yet he says this, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. How does this work? How does this work? 
the greatest man ever born to woman. And he is saying that you, any single one of you who have come into the kingdom of God, that you are greater than he. Is this greater in obedience? Is this greater in task? Is this greater in importance? Is this greater in ministry? No, he is saying there are things that John desired to see as the last of the Old Testament prophets. As the one who was continually looking forward, as the one who would not see the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension of Christ Jesus. As the one who would not have the day of Pentecost come upon him and be filled with the Holy Spirit and look to the word of God as we are today. That there are things which John longed to see, which even the least of the saints in this time we behold freely. Are you with me? You see what an incredible gift this is. For God to see fit to cause you to be born in this age, in this time. And so, the mystery, Paul is saying, has been revealed. It's been revealed. That which the prophets long to see, that to him and to the other apostles, it's been revealed that he might then freely give it to the world. That, he might be, that it might be brought to light for everyone. Now, what is this mystery? What is God's plan? What is this thing that he's been building towards? What is this thing that Moses and Abraham and David and John the Baptist long to see? At the end of verse 9, he says that it was God's plan set forth in Christ. Do you see? This mystery, it isn't just a set of facts. It isn't a secret decoder ring. We're getting towards the Christmas season, and I'm sure all of you, like um, good Americans, you're going to watch the Christmas story and watch as Ralphie looks forward to getting his Red Rider BB gun. But somewhere in there, there's this little secret decoder ring. You remember that story? He longed to get the secret, decoder, the secret decoder ring so that he could understand the message, the hidden message that was given to him. It's not a secret decoder ring. It's not some hidden piece. It's not some secret facts. It's a person. It's the person and work of Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's what they longed to see, even if they only saw him through shadows and signs and pointers. That's why perhaps so many of them missed him. They didn't expect one to come in the way that he came. And yet, Colossians 2.2 speaks of it like this. The riches of the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, that he himself is the mystery, in whom, that is in Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Christ Jesus, that he himself is this mystery. He was the one who has been revealed, the one who had been hidden behind a veil since the very beginning of time. He is the one who was promised for thousands of years, only be seen in signs and shadows and pointers, and yet now fully revealed, fully revealed to the apostle Paul and the other apostles recorded for us here that we may come, we may see, we may believe, we may understand God's plan and his purpose and his will from before the ages of, before the beginning of time. So that any who come to him, any who are found in Christ, what Paul says there in Colossians 2 is that we might find that in him are hidden all the treasure of wisdom and knowledge, everything we need to know about the Father, everything you could possibly need to know about God, everything you need to know about this life, everything you need to know about God's will for you and you're walking forward in holiness as you endure to the end, all of this is found in him. I want you to think about the two sad disciples that were walking on the road to Emmaus. Jesus, of course, has been crucified and they believe that he's just gone. They've heard about the women going to the tomb and finding it empty and they're just, they're sad and this. You see this picture as Jesus walks alongside him. It's almost comical the way this encounter happens as they ask him, have you not heard? Are you the only man in all of Jerusalem that's not heard what happened? We thought that he was the Messiah. And the scripture tells us, Luke 24, that he said to them, 
O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself, the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's the only lens through which this world and this word will ever make sense. These men knew the stories. They knew the promises. They knew the prophecies. What they did not know yet was Christ Jesus, that he was the only lens through which any of this would ever make sense. That's why no matter what situation I find myself in, any type of biblical counseling, anyone that comes to me, it doesn't matter what the scenario, whether they are dealing with their own sin against another, someone else has sinned against them, they're talking about marriage or health or finance or politics or anything in all the world, my answer is always the same. I bring them back to Christ. I bring them back to the gospel of Jesus Christ because that's the only way that this world ever makes sense. That's the only way you can ever decipher all the stuff that's coming at you. Think about this. We live in a world that is constantly throwing information at us. Much of this information, it hurts. So you've got your own emotions, your own hurt, your own suffering, your own doubts, your own confusion, and a bunch of stupid voices all around you. And the only way that you're going to ever be able to see through any of that and rightly discern God's will, come to true knowledge of him, is in Christ Jesus. So we always take them back to the gospel. We always take them back to Christ, knowing that, of course, for many, that's not going to be the answer they want. That's not the knowledge that they're looking for. For those that do not have eyes to see, despite the fact that they have this revelation before them, that they live in this privileged time, that they themselves can see, they can pick up on their phone or their iPads or one of the millions of Bibles all around them, they can pick up and see things that the prophets of old long to see. Despite all of that, they're going to find it as nothing but foolishness. We say, here is Christ Jesus. He is the one that makes it all make sense. He is the one who sums up all of this. He is the end for all this, as we will see next week. They say, I don't buy that. I don't buy that. Because what we are showing them in Christ Jesus is a crucified Savior. What we are promising them in Christ Jesus is if they too would suffer and die with him, that they would inherit an eternal kingdom. That's nonsense. Everything in our flesh cries out, that can't make sense. That's not what we long for. That's not something that we desire. Not because of a lack of access. Not because of a faulty intellect, but because of a lack of spiritual wisdom and insight. Because a man needs not only access to the information, he needs eyes to see it and ears to hear it. You with me? Again, I tell you, it's not a secret decoder ring. It's a new heart that men need to embrace this as the answer. So we hold before them this crucified Savior, and they will reject it. Unless God has granted them this wisdom, this insight, this knowledge, which only comes from heaven. I want you to go back to those two men on the road to Emmaus. Jesus unfolds all of this for them. You remember how the story goes? He unfolds all of this. He shows them. He walks them all the way through. Who knows how long this walk was? But he works through the prophets. He works through the Old Testament. He works through, he's showing them. I'm the one that has been pointing to all along. It was always the Christ. Didn't he have to suffer and die? Didn't the Old Testament say this? And didn't he himself say that he must suffer and die and rise again? And then he goes on. They turn aside to the city and they ask him, would you not come with us? So the scripture says that he did. And when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them and their eyes were open and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight and they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us 
when he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Beloved, that's the thing, that your eyes would be open, that your hearts within you would be burning, that you would come to this word, not just consuming some facts about the Old Testament, not just consuming some facts about how Jesus is the peace that they all pointed towards, but have your eyes open, have your heart changed, and to see Christ as he is, that this is true wisdom. This is true insight. This is true knowledge. So that you've come into this place, many of you, and you don't know what to make of this world around you. None of it makes sense. You're just looking for something solid you could ground yourself on. And I stand before you and I say, the answer is Christ Jesus. You say, I don't know what to do with this world. I don't know what tomorrow will hold. And I say, listen, he has promised to meet you at his table. He has promised to come here and give you the grace that you need. His mercies are new every single morning. He has gone before you. He will meet you here. He will give you all the wisdom, all the insight, all the understanding, all the knowledge that you need to endure well, to walk in holiness. And for those of you who have eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that are burning within your chest, you will shout out, Amen, Hallelujah. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you for the wisdom, the insight, the knowledge, the understanding that you have granted us in Christ Jesus our Lord. Father, as we will see next week as we unfold the rest of this text, you have truly blessed us in the fact that there are not multiple places you have called your children to come but that Christ Jesus is all in all. Whether it is mercy, whether it is grace, whether it is wisdom, whether it is strength, whether it is forgiveness, whether it is provision, whether it is healing, whether it is anything in all the universe, there is only one place to which we come to receive it, and that is Christ Jesus, our Lord. So as we approach this table today, because the reality is there are multivariant needs all throughout this, world, all throughout this room, People need all sorts of different things. And there's not a one of us in this room that can give them all that they need. But that at this table, Christ Jesus promises to meet them and give them exactly that. So Father, I pray that you prepare our hearts to meet with him now. In your son's precious name we pray. Amen.